Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Loudwire Podcast. And I'm Graham. And I'm Joe. And that took was way obnoxious. long. <laughs> that took a really, really long time to record. That was, But we're not here to waste your time any longer. No, 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 no. Graham's got a lot of important stuff to talk about. Yes. First of all, today on the podcast, we've got bad religion legend Greg Graffin. One Dr. of my... Yes, Dr. Greg, Greg Graffin. My, where are your manners? Sorry. One of my all-time favorite, favorite musicians, frontmen, people, a guy who I admire very, very much. But before we get into that, I want to talk about this awesome showcase that we had in Austin over the weekend. This last weekend, we had the sickest bill in Austin last week. We had Giraffe Tongue Orchestra. You may have heard them on our podcast, Ben Weinman, William Duvall. We had them. We had... Pig Destroyer, we had Power Trip repping that amazing new thrash record. Don't forget Fister. Yeah, <laughs> Fister, best band name on the bill. A Godmother from Sweden, a hardcore band, absolutely murdered the place. First ever U.S. show First there. ever U.S. show, that was awesome. Yeah, those sludge fiends in Thou. Yep, uh, Thou and Primitive Weapons and also Ringworm. We had an awesome bill. Every single band was Great. And one very special part of Giraffe Tongue Orchestra is Mr. Brent Hines from Mastodon. Now, I love Ben Weinman, big Dillinger fan. I love William Duvall. Those new Allison Chains records so are good. killer. Their drummer's awesome. Their bassist is awesome. But Brent Hines from Mastodon, a guy who I really admire and have wanted to meet for a long, long time. And I met him backstage at the show and we were all hanging out congratulations yes and i but at first i was way too nervous to approach him because Aww. he's brent hines and he's probably obliterated which he, he was and like you don't know how he's gonna react he's kind of like a wild animal a savage animal savage animal <laughs> as sebastian bach would say savage animal <laughs> but yeah, so I just, he's just kind of one of those guys that I, I didn't know how to approach. I've interviewed so many people and I don't really get intimidated by many of them, but like I just didn't know how to approach him. And you know, Giraffe you Tongue. You should have said bye when, as soon as, hi, bye, Graham. <laughs> See, I off. didn't even know how to say hi. Like I didn't even know how to get to that point because then it's like, what do I say? Like I don't want to be, I don't like fanboying out in front of, People like, hey, I'm, like I'm Graham, and I just think you're awesome, and you're amazing, and I love your music. Yeah, you know? when I met Dio, I just like shut up and couldn't say yeah. anything. Yeah, well, that's probably the right way to go about it. You don't want to mm. embarrass yourself, you know. But you know, with Brent, uh, you know, I didn't meet him until after they played. It's actually funny because Mastodon was playing a show like five blocks away, right after Draft Tongue Orchestra finished, and we were all gonna go to the show. And of course, you know, we're all getting ready. I'm like, okay, guys, I got to go take a piss. And, you know, like, wait for me here. And I go take a pee. It's a long pee because I had been drinking a lot. And when I get back, everyone's gone. I'm like, great, fantastic. I'm going to go. I don't even know where the venue is. I'm going to have to go walk there by myself. Of course, they text me saying, oh, yeah, our boss said we have to go now. Couldn't say no. Like, all right, whatever. But anyway, I walked over to the venue. And when I got there, there's a giant line. You know, we were on a list, but, you know, it doesn't guarantee entry and stuff. So I'm freaking out because I really want to see Mastodon. It's their first show in like six months. So we'd be the first people hearing some of that new material and that new record kills. So mm. 
I'm outside just kind of trying to call, you know, one of my coworkers and he's not picking up the phone. I'm texting him. It wasn't me. No, it's not Joe. He wasn't there. Uh, I didn't get to go. Yeah. I was texting. He wasn't responding. And I'm just like, oh my, if they're in the venue and I'm not, I'm going to kill them. And then suddenly, you know, while I'm looking down at my phone, I feel an arm scoop me up (laughs) on the sidewalk like a, like a baby. I think I know where this is going. You don't. Because it was Ben Weinman oh. from the Dillinger Escape Plan. He was walking down the Lots street with the guys from Godmother, who I actually became quite good friends with, really nice guys. And they were walking down the street, and you know Ben and I were talking, and he's been in here, so we know each other. So just randomly, he just scoops me up off the street, and I'm like, I'm being dragged. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> t- oh, hey, what's Ben? Oh, hey, what's up, man? And he drags me to Bill Kelleher from Mastodon, who apparently has been like 10 feet away from me the whole time when I've been calling and texting. <laughs> and he was, we did an interview with him earlier that day. Uh, was and he's Facebook also Live. was on Facebook Live. You want to go Live. back and try to find that video? And he was also in here not too long ago. So he knows me too. So he was like, oh, I know you. Yeah, nice to see you again. And finally, I guess I made it to the venue somehow before my coworkers did. Maybe it's because I bolted over there because I didn't want to miss anything. So I saw them and I waved them over to where we were. And somehow we got into this special line, thanks to Ben Weinman and Bill Kelleher, where we got like into the VIP backstage area with its own bar and all that stuff. It was awesome. So, you know, we're just all talking, we're having drinks and we're in like a little circle and suddenly Brent Hines infiltrates our circle because we're with Ben Weinman and you know, so he sees Ben, obviously they're bandmates in Draft Tongue Orchestra, and I start, I, 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 yeah, and he, and Brent is. Way to represent the website. I know. And everybody is saying hi to Brent. Everybody, like in this little circle of people, like an eight person circle, and everyone is saying hi and shaking his hand, and I'm there just like kind of stiff holding my drink. And finally, He's standing directly across from me, too, so there's just no avoiding this. So finally, I put out my hand, and I say, Hi, Brent. My name's Graham. I'm from Loudwire. He shakes my hand and goes, Dude, I love your band. I'm like, (laughs) What? Yeah, and and somebody... It may have been Ben. It may have been someone else. (laughs) He's like, No, Brent. You know, he's he's from Loudwire. I go, Yeah. He goes, Oh, dude, I thought you said Mogwai. I'm like, No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I go, no, uh, I'm from Loudwire. And he goes, oh, man, I've never heard of your band. And then he gives me a big hug. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, hey, man, uh, just to let you know, I'm just a big fan and I think you're awesome. It's like, oh, man, thanks so much. That's so nice of you. He gave me a big hug again. And then, you know, it went off on his on his way. So, so his band, having played the Loudwire by Clairvoyant Showcase I, right. with a giant projected illuminated Loudwire logo on one of the walls sure. of the venue. Still he still didn't, didn't know that. Amazing. He didn't know who we were. Amazing. He didn't know that Loudwire was a site. He thought Loudwire was a band that he had never Incredible. heard before. So that's my encounter huh. with, with Brent Hines, and I thought it was a pretty damn good one. So on this podcast, we don't have Brent Hines. We have Greg Graffin. A lifelong punk rocker, a scientist, a man with a PhD in zoology, and a folk singer. Uh, he's actually been doing, he's actually done a few 
folky type albums, but the newest one is one called Millport, and it's really good. I really enjoy it. It's kind of the journeyman, Americana kind of roots music. And Greg asked, hey, would you play some of my music on the podcast? And we said, no. Of course we Get said. Get out of here. <laughs> Never come back. I hated Crazy Taxi. <laughs> <laughs> and of course we said yes. So we're going to play you a little music before we get to the interview with Greg Graffin. Dr. Greg Graffin, I'm sorry. So get ready to sit down and listen to Making Time from Greg Graffin. Just another day of sorrow going down. Like the road unfurled behind you, leaving town In the morning's cold reflection yesterday Comes the chill of where you've been and what you've been Dr. Greg, Greg Graffin. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much as well. I appreciate being here. Oh, we're so happy to have you, man. Uh, the new album, Millport, uh, this stuff is right up my alley. Like, great folk, kind of journeyman, hop on a railway car kind of music, you know, uh, totally up my alley. And one thing I noticed uh, from listening to this and through a lot of other uh, of your music is that you get a lot of inspiration from science and the natural world, you know, the title track, you're talking about nature a whole lot. You know, there's lyrics like the waters rise, like the cares of the world, shotgun, uh, like a shooting star, I'm useless from afar. Uh, can you talk to me a little about your inspiration from science and the natural world? Well, I think one thing you're uh, taught as a naturalist is to observe, just observe the things around you and be open to interpretation. Sure. And uh, I think that's the basis of all science. And one thing I've always tried to come to terms with, because I travel so far and wide, not only in America, but over in Europe and Japan and all, all the great places I've visited, there's always this sense of uh, relics or, um, you know, old buildings, old railroad um, depots. Yeah, antiquities that are scattered across the landscape. And I see them almost as I see... Uh, the natural landscape itself. Yeah. These are parts of our history, parts of what make us who we are. And on this album, I wanted to sort of uh, use those as metaphors of things that stick around for a long time in the face of tremendous change in the modern world. Yeah. So I'm obviously, as a singer now who's getting on in years <laughs> in an art form that uh, many predicted would be dead after 10 years or less... <laughs> which is still going strong, 
it made me think about that, you know, persistence in the face of tremendous change. Absolutely. We just had HR from the bad brains in here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously the guy's still around and people still love that band. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Graham's wearing a bad brain shirt. Right I'm now. wearing a bad brain shirt of the yellow tape. Yeah. My personal favorite. Yeah. Come at me, rock for light people. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> actually, uh, it, being a musician and a scientist, you kind of. Uh, you're living a duality that I kind of dream of living myself because I, if I could do one other thing with my life, it would be some sort of animal related or conservation related science. And I actually just went to Africa and lived on a uh, wildlife uh, rehabilitation center for two weeks. And it was just work, work, work. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. One of the best things I've ever done. Um, cool. And you know, as someone with a PhD in in zoology, I kind of wanted to get your opinion on something that one of the conservationists told us about. And he was talking about that he feels like the conservation of wildlife in Africa and in other parts of the world is essentially a hopeless cause because of you know, what humankind has kind of done to the region and depleting areas where wildlife can freely roam and pollution, global warming, all that other stuff that some people tend to believe in. Uh, I'd, I'd love to get your opinion in, uh, on that subject. Is it a lost cause? Well, this is a deeply philosophical, almost um, to the level of, uh, you know, religion, Um mm. Uh, in the sense that it, there are people who are deeply passionate about conservation, yeah, and um, and and I would not want to ever deter them from their passion because it's very important stuff. But um, when you're trained in animal science, as I've been, um, and in naturalistic pursuits, uh, what you do, you tend to go above the level of the species and you tend to look at entire habitats Mm. because a species cannot persist if its habitat is destroyed. Yes. So what your friend in Africa was probably trying to tell you was there's been so much habitat destruction that in order to save these species, it's a hopeless cause. In a sense, he's right. And one of our great challenges for the 21st century is going to be how do we maintain and preserve enough diverse habitats so that these ecosystems can still function. Yeah. But there's another side of it, and that is people who purely just love animals. Yeah, true. And and to see an animal go extinct to them is almost a catastrophic loss. And yeah. I, that's irrespective of the habitat that they live in. Mm-hmm. And so there, I think those people are content just creating these breeding programs and preserving the species at all costs, even in zoos and things like that. Yes. And zoos, you know, a lot of them justify their existence because they are areas of um, rehabilitation and preservation of the species. And that's for the love of animals. Yes. And I would never criticize that. It's good for education, too, because kids learn a lot when they go to zoos. And that gives them an appreciation, hopefully, of preserving the habitat that those species come from. And it seems like even if they do know that it's futile, they understand and feel a responsibility to 
even if there is a certain end date, whatever that might be, let's try to keep this going as long as we possibly can. So that way when people look back on this and they say what happened, they could at least look back and go, well, you know what? At least somebody was trying. It's not yeah, that everybody and it's ignored this problem. Right. And it's justification for creating habitat uh, preservation, which is crucially important. Yes. Uh, that man's name is Brian Jones, by the way, at... Uh, Mahola Holo, not the cult leader, Brian Jones, yeah. but, but uh, yeah. just a, a great man. And he was saying uh, sort of an answer that I think you'd probably appreciate that, you know, look, tourism isn't going to fix things. Uh, you know, just having a bleeding heart about animals and, and about the natural world isn't going to fix things. What's going to fix things, you know, at least partially is education. He said that's the only way. It's the key to everything. It's not just yes. It's not just habitat preservation. It's politics. It's the way we choose to buy the things we choose to buy. Mm -hmm. You have to be educated, and that's sort of been my mission and my goal ever since I started the band. I didn't want to just be a lead singer who was you know a cool guy because I never thought I was cool. You know, I never had cool hair. I never followed the trends. I was never a trendsetter. But I really wanted to take very seriously this idea of education. I thought if we could put some ideas into our songs, ideas and philosophical positions into our songs, make other people think that that could be the greatest gift that we could possibly do as a band. And I hopefully continue it uh, in my solo project, too. Absolutely. And one thing that I've noticed that's pretty interesting <clears throat> lately, the last few years in particular, is uh, the shifting musical climate kind of favoring country in areas that you wouldn't really expect it to. Country and folk, I mean, of course you had Mumford & Sons blowing up on the radio, but even down at the deeper level, there's so many acts within the metal rock punk community leaning into country. You've got Jonathan Davis from Korn, Danny Warsnop from Asking Alexandria, Al Jorgensen from Ministry, and I'm sure you got a couple friends and me first in the Gimme Gimmies. They did that whole country covers album. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people are more open-minded these days about some of these heavier, harder acts crossing over onto that side? Well, it seems like they're they're giving country its fair due. I mean, they're giving it a fair listen um, if they haven't been exposed to it before. But I think it says something important about these genres uh, that you mentioned. And punk is one of them that, you know... It's now old enough that punk ha is a sort of roots music. It goes back oh, yeah. 50 years, you know, yeah. <laughs> almost. And, and that means, at least my definition of roots music, is music that's handed down generation after generation. Not all the songs that came out 50 years ago in punk are going to be handed down. Mm. Only a fraction of them are good enough songs, but yeah. those good ones are as good as any songs that have ever been written in any genre. Yeah. And that's sort of how I came into punk was from roots music that had been handed down in my family from the 1920s and before and recorded mm -hmm. on 78 records that my mother's grandfather collected and that are now part of our family. Mm -hmm. And uh, her and her brother are the ones who really, you know, handed these songs down to me before I even thought about being a punk singer. I learned how to sing by these old records and by singing with my family around the piano. Yes, and maybe these other singers that you've talked about have a similar experience. You know, they're contributing to their own style of roots music, their own genres, 
And yet they were inspired by something. Many of them have probably had musical families as well. So I, I don't know about the listening audience, but I know about the people creating this music. And I think they're, they're inspired to do it, not because it's trendy, but because this is stuff that actually um, helped inform their songwriting and their singing originally. Yeah, and I think if it's inspired, you could tell an honest product from yeah. a phony yeah. one real quickly. So yeah. a lot of like, you know, some of the maybe the country radio pop stuff, not so much for this audience, but I mean, with Millport, you could obviously tell where you as a person are coming from on that album. And if you're a Bad Religion fan, you're going to connect with Greg Graffin. So, of course, well, you're going to go I appreciate to you saying album. that because that, that makes me feel like we've accomplished our objective then. Because I listen to it. It feels very authentic. Uh, the musicians are so, you know, these guys were virtuoso. They are virtuoso. Members of Social D. Yeah. yeah. And they love this stuff. It, you can feel it in the way they play it. And um, you can't just get on stage and pretend at that level, you know, it's, it's an authentic sound. Sometimes the moon and stars can catch you by surprise There's just too many virtues in the night The bitter chill blows through this board in Baton Pine there's just too many virtues in the night There's just too many virtues in this lonesome sorry heart All loaded with pride Then the old go on it in from the cold Morning too many virtues uh you know and of course being in the realm of politics with bad religion it kind of made me think of the way that liberalism is seen by some people is that it's being run or idealized by too many virtues <laughs> like you know like uh, emotion is sort of getting in the way of logic you know a lot of people would say uh you know is that something that, I don't know if you meant to address that or it's just my mind or whatever, but uh, it, it's, it's an interesting thing that I've, I've seen. And um, how do you personally balance emotion versus logic in your life? Yeah, I mean, that's a good observation. Honestly, that song didn't have any political motivation, mm. um, but I, I appreciate your interpretation of it because it, it makes sort of uh, sense to where I was coming from where sometimes uh, virtue, you know, the things that are supposed to be um, 
the things we strive towards uh, actually become a distraction. Yeah. And uh, you have to take solace in the old crow who's, uh, you know, symbolizes grief and misery. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I was, the metaphors I was using in that tune. But emotion has to play an important role in any song, whether it's uh, too many virtues or um, uh, sorrow or yeah, you know, yeah. a, any bad religion song. It's uh, If you don't have an emotional component, uh, it does sound shallow and it sounds like you're just trying to commercialize something or capitalize on a trend. Yeah. And um, that's why I say you can't just turn on songwriting like you turn on the faucet. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, people say, why don't you just put out another record? Well, because it doesn't work like that. <laughs> if there's not the, emo- you know, the emotion has to mix with life experience. Sometimes you just got to live life a little bit. And before let it you- come to you. That's why you hear about singers, even though I haven't done this yet. Let's look into this, Taylor. Some singers actually go away to Tahiti for two months and they, you know, try to find inspiration. Yeah, I, I never <laughs> so understood does, that. Well, the, I've, I've never been able to do that, but I do understand where they're coming. They need to live life a little bit to get in touch with their emotional component, I Disconnect guess. Disconnect from the day to day. Yeah. I could understand going somewhere remote to open your brain up and to, you know, stop from all the different things from attacking you on a daily basis yeah. and then maybe i can just think clearly like you know when you're in the shower or well something. i've never been <laughs> one to lounge on a beach that makes me oh, go crazy me but too. like you just mm-hmm. said you went to africa you know i've traveled um recreationally uh, mm. but every time i travel recreationally it's somewhere exciting that just it does open my li- my mind up to more yes. questions and that's the kind of life experience I'm talking about. When you live life to its fullest, you're every day confronted with new experiences that lead to more questions. Mm. And as a songwriter, those are the kind of questions I try to put in touch with my emotions and distill into a two-minute song. Wow. Yeah, and also just the way that you have been able to evoke emotion from so many people. I mean, I, I was saying earlier, we were talking, and... No, I was, I was kind of comparing uh, this album, Millport, to a song like Sorrow because it's very evocative. Uh, it's very whimsical. It's got that folky kind of almost jangly sound to it. And it's just something that you want to scream back. And so, you know, for fans of Bad Religion, if you love Sorrow, which you must if you're a Bad Religion fan, you know, that then this album might be for you. So, And Sorrow is actually one of the songs that you've been playing live, just doing your, your solo stuff. So, you know, that connection there, you know, I, I want to know what do you feel that's unique when you play, when you play Sorrow? Because it's a very unique song. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to uh, play it so many times a year that, I'm focused a lot on the um, delivery, you know, as a yeah. singer, if you if you just get out there and uh, recite words and hit the notes, mm. it still isn't a good performance. Yeah. So I put a lot of uh, feeling into it and it takes a little bit of a meditation internally to to be able to accomplish that each oh. night. So I, I, it's not very cerebral, in other words. Okay. I, I don't really analyze it too much. But certainly any good song, and I mean this from any genre, can be adapted to another production style. I really believe that. Yeah. You know, if it's a good song, should be able to be played on an acoustic piano or an acoustic guitar. And the way we're doing Sorrow is kind of interesting 
on this uh, Millport run. Yeah. Because um, turn into like a bluegrass kind of. Well, song it actually. Or yeah, I thought it was more like almost like uh, Paul Simon type. Oh, uh, another good one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it. I didn't even like I said, it's not cerebral. I didn't even realize it until we started playing it that it, it's got that real kind of Graceland feel. So, what other songs would you say kind of have that transcendental quality, that it just can be played really across the board on anything? I mean, other songs, you know, I uh, from BR. I mean, I've played God song on mm. piano. I've played mm. Cease on piano. Um, How about outside of Bad Religion too? Anything that really just strikes you as just maybe one of the most incredibly written songs and composed songs, no matter how you filter it. Uh yeah, it's hard to yeah. There's so many of them. It really is a tough one to put your finger on. I really mean when I say, you know, it's inclusive. It's almost any genre, any great song. You can distill it down and it'll be great still. Sure. You know, I've, I read your, uh, one of your books, Anarchy Evolution, mm -hmm. uh, a, a great duality between, you know, the natural world and the state of punk rock. I really enjoyed it. But one thing that always stuck with me is you were talking about how you never felt like you had like a beautiful voice. And that just like, that broke my head. <laughs> because, and, you know, of course you're like kind of gruff, you know, in that, you know, I guess maybe a Woody Guthrie, but you know, like a guy like Woody Guthrie, a guy like Bob Dylan, you know, it's not about the sonic quality of the tone of the voice. It's like the evocative emotional the aspects of it. Oh. So like, I wanted to maybe hear you talk a little more about that, you know, when it comes to your own voice, because I was like, when I listen to Sorrow, I'm just like, oh, like it hits me so hard. And I'm like, this is so beautiful. And, you know, also, you know, the stuff on Millport very recently. Um, I guess, what did you mean by that statement? Uh, I think what it means is that uh, you think of all the things that you grow up with, you know, on your, uh, that makes you who you are. Yeah. And you don't really, you don't gauge them in terms of a beauty standard. Okay. <laughs> they're just, they're who you are. Yeah. You know, maybe there are really beautiful women in the world who or beautiful men who look at themselves in the mirror and are really taken by their beauty and they enhance it every day. And, you know, but my voice wasn't like that. No. Okay. I, I, I just saw it as the tool that I use to communicate. And um, I always knew that I, I had very good tone yeah. and I knew I could hit the notes. I mean, I'm very confident about my voice, but I just never thought of it as a thing of beauty. Okay. So I knew it sounded cool when other people harmonized with it. And that, mm. that meant a lot to me, you know, and my teachers always told me I grew up in choirs and they always said, you know, that I had some talent. And wow, so they always, I, I believed yeah. them. Wow. But, uh, not a church choir, was it? No, no, these were school no, choirs, school choir. yeah, conventional choirs, and I always sang the alto parts, and I loved when wow. the harmonies were created. That always made me feel real good. Okay, wow. Um, another thing that I'd like to talk about is, I feel like right now, um, a guy like you, or people like you, can get lost in the weeds, because I feel like we're right now in like a fact-resistant culture. And it's kind of sad to see how diluted the importance of a fact has become. And obviously, as a man who speaks through punk rock, 
a man who speaks through science, the truth must be very important to you. Um, has this been a troubling time, in your opinion? Uh, it's a little, yeah, it's troubling to see how willing most people are to believe what they read on Facebook because yeah, that's, 10 that's of their one. friends said it's true, therefore it must be true. Yeah. That's very troubling. Herd and mentality, is, confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah. yeah and those, kind of, those kind of things are, um, are troubling, but only because it's hard to get your own... Um, um, you know, it's hard for them to be reasonable and listen to other um, perspectives. Yeah. However, I do want to leave you with the fact that just because it's troubling doesn't sway me one bit from maintaining the notion that facts will always rule the day. Now, it may take longer in this climate yeah. for mm -hmm. them to get discovered. But it's it's never been more important, even if you don't have any Facebook friends, mm -hmm. to state the facts and make sure that what you're stating is repeatable, verifiable, and that you can readily show to other people. It's never been more important because those facts will be uncovered when people stop following their, you know, their uh, inclination to just to believe what's in the rumor mill. So facts. Um, today will, uh, you know, they might be pushed to the background, but they will be uncovered. And that's ultimately what contributes to human knowledge. So, um, it's never, even though it's maybe, um, a little bit dark times for the, for facts, um, it's never been more important to state them. Yeah. And then, I mean, it must be especially weird, I guess for you. I mean, the two of us grew up as the internet rose to prominence, but to grow up before the internet and to imagine the possibilities of like, wow, we have all this access to information. That would be great. And then you see that happen. And it seems like most people are now not willing to research and find the proper information, even though the tools are there and it's a little bit more of an ignorant culture than it's kind of ever been. Well, so is that mind boggling I, for you? Yeah. The freedom of information requires a more enlightened public. And we're becoming less enlightened. I think so we're being what pelted by stimuli too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably true. So that's interfering with your ability to go and research things. But, but in the old days, you didn't have ten or twenty sources of news. You had one. Mm -hmm. You know, the nightly news, <laughs> and usually it was, you know, a, a team of really dedicated. Uh, objective journalists who wrote out that script every night or the newspaper mm -hmm. every day. And now there's this notion that anyone can contribute to the news. You know, mm -hmm. everyone's opinion is just as valid as the next guy. Mm. And uh, that's, I think that's getting us into a lot of trouble because yeah. well, I don't agree with that. Well, the news used to be just a <clears throat> public service that TV stations would just provide their people as like an extra freebie and that kind of that made them objective because it wasn't entertainment news. It was just like, okay, we have to do this. Let's just report the facts because we're not making any money off this anyway. But now the public service isn't about journalistic integrity. Now the mm. public service is Facebook allows you 
to say whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Facebook, you know, makes you feel like your opinion is just as valid as that journalist who's, who's, you know, researching the next story on vaccines. Mm. So as long as you get more likes yeah. than they do. Right. <laughs> or if you do speak out and you have an opinion different from what everybody else is saying, you get viciously attacked and then you're more likely to just conform with the herd mentality because mm. that's the easier way to go. You don't need to be a salmon swimming upstream if you don't need to be. Right. That's a good point too. Uh, so when it comes to bad religion, bad religion had this, I think, incredible creative resurgence when the Bush administration came by, you know, with the process of belief in 2002. Um, I don't know if it was directly because of that, but it seems that punk bands do their greatest works when there's a Republican in the office. It always seems like that. Like the Reagan years were great for hardcore. The Bush years, I think, were really great. And in this new era, I feel like if punk is ever going to have a big resurgence, it's going to be now because there's so much inspiration, so much to write about. Uh, are you inspired uh, by today's climate for uh, a band like Bad Religion? And, and what do you think about maybe a potential rise in punk? Uh, I'd probably try and steer you towards a different conclusion. Okay. Because I don't believe that the political era has any motivating... F- in fact, it depresses me. Okay. You know, well, and, <laughs> and if you think about it, if your if your objective is to react against the current administration, what happens when that administration is finished? Sure. Then those songs become somewhat dated. And if you notice, our, I think one of the strengths of the Bad Religion catalog is that people always say, well, those songs you wrote way back when are even more relevant today. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a good indication that if you strive to write about songs that have a message that are, you know, every songwriter wants to try and strive for timelessness. Sure. You know, and something that's just going to go right to the heart of the matter. And if that matter is something that's only going to be in the next four years, it's not going to have the kind of impact, I think, that something like, um, you know, God song or something that mm-hmm. was written about an, a timeless philosophical problem, which transcends all politics, I think is much more powerful. And, I, and you know, back on process of belief, I like to believe that that was a great album that was just really well written and well recorded. Yeah. Not because of the Bush administration. And in fact, um, I think one of our, you know, biggest songs on the Bush administration era album was Los Angeles is Burning, yes. which um, that came out on uh, uh, Empire Strikes, Empire Strikes First. First. And yeah. and that song is like an anthem, you know, it's, it totally. doesn't have, you wouldn't even know that there was any hint of of the, the Bush um, politics in there. That's so. true. So I just, as a songwriter, I try not to react too strongly because that, I think, can lead you down a road that will ultimately be a dead end. Right. Hmm. All right. I know you got to get going soon, but if I could ask you one more question. Uh, you're a very accomplished guy, and you've done really well in a lot of different fields, a lot of different areas of life. Uh, music, being a Ph.D. candidate, being an author, 
being a professor and being a dad. Um, which of those, if you could compare, would you say has been the most challenging? Challenging? Well, yeah. emotionally challenging is the parent, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, intellectually challenging, you know, they're all they're all pretty equal. Mm. Uh, it's very difficult to to try and focus on improvement in in multiple different areas, and but it's also the most rewarding. Sure. So I think through difficulty, you know, maybe it's my Midwestern pragmatism, mm. uh, my upbringing, but I think through difficulty comes the greatest satisfaction when you can achieve something. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Greg, it's been a joy for you to come in here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I uh, really appreciate it, uh, too. I'm a longtime fan. It's been great to have you in. Again, everybody, Millport is the new record. Pick it up. Some whimsical music. I think you're going to like it. Give it a chance. Greg Graffin, everybody. Thank you. All right, and that's Dr. Greg Graffin. My goodness. He was fun to have. Uh, That was lovely, wasn't it? Yeah, it's always good talking about stuff that's a little bit outside of music because you get a deeper understanding of who this person is. I mean, we could talk about the music all day. Sure. And you could read about the music all day on a bunch of places, but this is the only spot where you're going to really hear a lot of outside conversation about things like that, bringing in personal experiences and... Even when he was talking about, you know, being in the choir and in school. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's talking about the harmonies, and, and it kind of clicked like, wow. Makes like sense. If, yeah, like that's where every the whole bad religion sound came from was, you know, influenced from those choirs. And, you know, I've read Greg's book, uh, one of his books. I should really read the rest. But I've been an admirer of him as a scientist, as a teacher. Oh, I remember one time I went online just... You know, you know, like rate my teacher, no, rate my professor, <laughs> rate my professor. And I was just like, I, I need to know what his students are saying about him, like as a professor. And uh, he didn't have that many reviews, I don't think. But people were like, yeah, he's he's good. He's good. And I think he had one of those chili pepper things that said that he was hot. Oh, the hot him. professor chili pepper. Yeah, yeah. I remember using that in college and like, <laughs> but I remember just Picking looking at your next courses based on how many peppers. Kind of, yeah. Mm. Normally it was uh, the hottest of the peppers. <laughs> <laughs> I would look online to see the schools that Greg Graffin was teaching at. I think it's Cornell. He's taught at Cornell, which I could not get into. So I also looked at. I think it was University of California, and. Uh, maybe UCLA or something. I'm just like, hmm, how can I get into one of these how, schools? And- what excuse can I make just to show up in one of his classes one day? Can I do it? Can I do summer school? And and I was a music major. So, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about science, but hey, I mean, that just shows you what a huge fan of his I am. So mm. just to be able to sit here with him and Get a little bit of schooling on science, a little schooling on punk. A little worldly perspective. Yeah, some politics. And it, it was just a joy for me. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed it also. And what's funny for me is how I got into bad religion was actually through Crazy Taxi. 
Oh yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were on the them and the offspring, the offspring were the only soundtrack, and it might have been like maybe five songs between the two of them. So, so good. you play the the game for three hours and you hear the same Bad Religion song as you're crashing into cars and people so collecting good. money. It's great, it's awesome. So we got into Iron Maiden through video games too. Tony that was Hawk, Tony Pro Hawk, Skater right? 4. Yeah, man, those video but, game soundtracks are they're just magical sometimes. Yeah, I guess they got me. Man. It works. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed our podcast. I hope you enjoyed the little pieces of the new record Millport that we gave you. I know I've been playing it a lot. Again, totally up my alley along with, you know, the grindcore and the death metal and punk and whatnot. But, you know, I got to chill out sometimes. Make sure you visit loudwire.com for all your daily rock and metal news. Hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can follow me at Gramwire on Twitter. And you can follow me on Instagram at Ice Nerve Shatter if you missed the Max Cavalera podcast and you're wondering, well, Joe, I thought I was following you on Twitter at Ice Nerve Shatter, waiting weeks for you to make a post. <laughs> it's it's not it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So, so I guess Instagram's you, the yeah, thing Yeah, just now. follow me on Instagram. You could see parts of my vinyl collection that I like to post and bunch of other cool stuff that's way more exciting than following me on twitter without many pictures and limited characterization there you go thank you all so much for listening to the loudwire podcast we appreciate you so much we'll hear you or see you or feel you next time feel you i want you to want me play dukin's